This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to AOA today. Mike Pearson here. Really excited to talk to you. We have a lot coming on today and uh, we are going to be talking markets. We've got some green on the screen today in the grains. Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis will join us in just a second and uh, we'll dig into that as well. We're also going to dig into Darren's thoughts on corn demand. He's been looking closely at that issue. In segment two, we're going to hear from Jim Long. He's the president and CEO of Genesis Genetics, a genetics operation for pork producers. He's been looking at the hog industry globally, and there are a couple of trends that have him a little concerned about the future production issues and, of course, demand from the consumer perspective. We'll talk to Jim about that in segment two. And in segment three, Ethan Lane of NCBA will be joining us. The summer business meeting is underway down in Reno, Nevada. And uh, we're going to hear what is under discussion there from cattle producers. We're going to close the show with Randy Dickett of National, excuse me, Farmers National Land Company discussing how things are developing when we look at farmland prices. And folks, they are still strong. But without further ado, let's jump over to to Darren Newsom. Darren, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. Well, let's talk about what is happening here in the markets today. Darren, we have a lot of green on the screen today. What are the traders watching? You know, to me, what they're watching is, you know, we, certainly we've got some technical factors uh, built into these markets where they're sharply oversold. So, you know, the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe we could start to bring some investment money back into these things. But from a fundamental point of view, you know, we still have incredibly bullish situations, both old crop, new crop, corn, and soybean. Uh, and we can tell that by looking for the old crop market at basis. And for new crop, we can look at, you know, at, uh, at forward curves and, and future spreads. And both corn and soybeans are showing a very weak carry, meaning there's still a great deal of concern about this new crop out in the field uh, about overall supplies. But the real issue continues to be just how tight is the situation going to be coming out of the old crop marketing year that ends here at the, uh, when, when uh, we flip the calendar page from August to September. You know, we're looking at situations similar in both corn and soybeans to where we were at the end of the 2011-12 marketing year though we, at that point, we had another drought year 12, 13 ahead of us. Do we have that same situation? It's certainly shaping up that everything's still dry. Uh, and if we carry that through the rest of the summer and in the fall, certainly it's going to set the stage for another exciting year next year. It certainly is. I mean, the, the the ingredients are all there for a lot of excitement. And Darren, one of the factors that has been under discussion here in the trade is this elevated corn price driving away corn demand. We saw that happen in 2012 when prices reached their, their stratospheric peaks. They're still elevated. Darren, are we seeing the end user pull back on corn usage? No, we're not. Um, at least not yet. Let me put it that way. Again, let's go back to basis. We've got 
we've got, you know, if we look at a couple of different cash indexes, theoretically basis uh, running roughly on national average about 85 and a half cents over September. And this is just an incredible number. I mean, this is the strongest that we've seen. Uh, so it's telling me that most of this, yes, is still coming from the feed side, but we also have strong ethanol demand and exports are holding their own as well. So all three legs of domestic corn demand staying strong right now, and it doesn't look like it's going to go away. I was just, uh, I just received an update from central Nebraska yesterday where his local bid uh, went from 120 over to 135 over. So end users are searching for corn and they need corn. So as long as we can keep, you know, as, and, and we know that there's going to be some, a lot of cattle and feed yard for the foreseeable future, uh, ethanol demand, kind of a question. We're hitting that seasonal time frame when driving starts to slow down. And exports, as long as we can keep good exports moving, demand's going to stay strong for a while. Let's talk about exports, Darren. On Friday, we had this landmark agreement between the Russians and the Ukrainians for safe passage for grain to get out into the global order. And then Friday afternoon, we had a missile strike in Odessa. I'm assuming the trade doesn't think a lot of that wheat or grains in Ukraine or Russia is going to make it out of that country. Is that where things stand? Yeah, that that's basically it. I mean, it, it was. I mean, you and I are both old enough to know that any what, what the value of any agreement, deal, treaty, whatever, uh, with Russia it means basically nothing. Now, what was interesting is a good friend uh, sent me an update uh, from a gentleman who's in Eastern Europe, and by letter of the law, Russia had every right to fire on the port because there was no ship in transit. That was the provision that they used mm. and they fell back on to say it's perfectly within our rights to go ahead and fire on this port. The reality is, as you just said, we're not going to see, this isn't going to change the global supply and demand situation all that much. You know, right now, folks are still, you know, countries are still going to need U.S. corn. And we still, we have tight supplies, but we still have some supplies as we come up on the end of this marketing year. The, the, the key is going to be weather, both here in the United States and in South America, what type of crops uh, for both corn and soybeans is Brazil, Argentina, and so on going to have? What does the U.S. ultimately wind up with? And that's why, you know, as we look at this overall supply and demand situation, it just really has everything, everything's still bearish, still based on weather, still based on this reshuffling of the global supply and demand situation. Well, with that global reshuffling, Darren, with this wheat from Russia and Ukraine not making its way legally, I guess, into the channels, the global trade, are we, do you expect to see domestic U.S. wheat prices climb back and add a little bit more of that war premium back that we lost here over the last month? It's, it's a great question because there's an old adage that comes to mind with wheat. You know, we just started the new marketing year. And so as we look back at what, you know, even though the supplies were tight coming out of the old marketing year, the old adage is one bushel of wheat left over is too many. And we've certainly seen that play out. So now we're going to get into a situation. We know we didn't get as many hard red uh, spring wheat uh, acres planted up in the northern plains. So those merchandisers have been trying to lock in some blending stock of hard red winter. So that's starting to provide some support there. And the weekly export inspections number for wheat in general showed an uptick here on Monday, which was for, you know, for last week. So we're starting to see a little bit of movement and starting to see a little bit of strength coming back into the soft red winter market. I think it's going to help. I think it could bring some buying back into the wheat market, but wheat's grown everywhere in the world. So yes, the domestic price can come back up. I don't think we're going to take out the highs because there's just too much competition worldwide. And if there is 
one grain market, but still susceptible or still vulnerable to a strong dollar, it is U.S. wheat. And that dollar is getting stronger today, Darren. Are we close to a top on this dollar? I think so. I think we've built in all, you know, we've built in the interest rate hikes. And I know this week we're going to find out whether or not the Fed moves 75 basis points or 100 basis points, but I think it's been priced in. So I do think the dollar has reached its peak and could start to back off. Could certainly surprise me here over the coming months. But I do think that could help the U.S. wheat a little bit, but not a lot. All right. Lots to come here in this growing season ahead. Darren Newsom of DarrenNewsom.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, Mike, thanks for having me on. And folks, stick around. We're going to dig into this hog market globally with Jim Long of Genesis Genetics when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Are you looking to improve crop nutrition and soil health? Anuvia Plant Nutrients is holding several Future of Fertilizer field tours across the Midwest. The first tour stop is Cedar Falls, Iowa on Tuesday, August 2nd, where Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live. The tour continues in Farmer City, Illinois on August 3rd and Sheridan, Indiana on August 4th. For more information on dates and locations and to reserve your spot, visit us at FertilizerTour.com. That's FertilizerTour.com. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. 
Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. Over the past six weeks, when we've discussed markets on this program, we talk about the grains, of course, and the volatility we've seen there. And we've discussed the cattle market and the, the shrinking cow herd we've seen. And anytime we have discussed the pork market, over the past six weeks, it has been in the context of a really strong rally in the front month, August lean hog futures. It has been a pretty incredible rally. I think at one point they put $20 on that market. And I'm curious as to why. And in order to get to the why of this, we've got to talk to somebody who has connections around the world. And that somebody is Jim Long, the president and CEO of Genesis Genetics. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, my, my pleasure. Thank you. Let's let's talk a little bit first about Genesis Genetics. Uh, Jim, what do you guys do? What's your connection to the hog industry? Uh, we're a genetic producer. We are uh, we produce swine genetics in 10 countries around the world and we market the 40. So uh, we have quite a bit of reach around the world and so what happens is we're paying attention to those markets, what's happening to them because it affects what our sales will be. Absolutely. It is crucial to understand our bottom line, to look at what's happening in the rest of the world in a global market like pork. And so, Jim, I want to start off with this rally we've seen over the past six weeks in lean hog futures. What, in your mind, has been the cause of this? What's been the driver for these uh, these futures to rally so much? I think the reality of the number of hogs, the, you know, the numbers are down, especially compared to, you know, we're a little bit less than last year and still significantly less than two years ago. I mean, really what we did is we moved to hog prices similar to what we had last year with the same number of hogs. So, I mean, it's a supply thing. And the other thing is, uh, you know, beef is very strong. Chicken is strong. So as a complementary product, I mean, you know, the cutouts of pork is, have reached over $1.20, but they still pale in comparison to beef at 265 on a cut, <laughs> on beef cutout. That's the truth. And so, Jim, as you think about the, the production plateauing here, as you work and talk with pork producers from around the country, is there des the desire in that industry to expand, to, to capture some of these prices, or are folks just trying to make do? I don't see any significant expansion. I, uh, as we all know, publicly, Smithfield has announced that they're going to liquidate approximately 50,000 sows out of the Utah operations. In my opinion, we will not ever put in 50,000 sows. So over the next few months, we are not going to see any net expansion for sure, in my opinion. And this sow culling that we're seeing, Jim, you mentioned in your most recent letter that it, it's not new and it's actually quite strong. Prices for sows have been very high. Again, is that just demand out there at the consumer level? I believe so. I mean, I think, you know, I, I believe, okay, I work on the basis nobody pays more than they have to. So the people buying sows, when we're killing over 60,000 a week, which is still a pretty significant number, it's not a low sow number, and sows are getting over 70 cents a pound from what I can see on average, I mean, it's because 
the demand is there and somebody's decided they can kill them and make some money selling sausage because that's where most of it goes. I mean, I think consumer demand in the U.S. is very strong. It is. It is. And I think, as you mentioned, the discount at the meat case that pork provides to beef helps encourage a lot of consumers to make that choice. And we're seeing that domestically here in the United States and in North America. But Jim, we're also seeing a shrinking hog herd around the world. I know you mentioned the EU is seeing their hog herd shrink. I've got to imagine that's kind of expected, though. I, I, I don't see the EU as being very friendly to animal agriculture. Is that kind of your understanding? There's multiple reasons why there's liquidation in Europe, but the number one reason is they've been losing money. Okay, feed prices are been running 25 percent higher than, let's say, North American feed prices. The what they were getting for hogs, they're losing money in every head. They were losing 35, 40 dollars U.S. per head for signet for many months. And uh, what happens when producers lose money? You end up with less hogs. Now the market has recovered. Spain, for example, has the highest price in euros that they've ever had right now. But they're barely making any money. Now, if you look at the Spain price in euros compared to U.S. dollars, actually it isn't as high as it was because the euros devalued significantly to the U.S. dollar over the last few months. I mean, it was about 1.20 to the U.S. dollar. Now it's 1 to 1, approximately. Right. So those prices, uh, yeah, that that uh, that has eaten away some of that euros purchasing power. Jim, when we're seeing extremely high prices like we're seeing in the eurozone, right? How much American pork is raised in such a way that it can fit into that market? Is this an opportunity for North American producers? Uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of. Um, what's the right word? Import restrictions to get U.S. pork into the EU. They do everything to make sure we don't export anything there because they they know they can't compete with the U.S. producer. So gotcha. to protect their egg, they keep the pork out. Well, another country that has a lot of protections on their agriculture space is China. And the Chinese pork industry has seen a lot of volatility stretching back to 2017 when African swine fever broke out. We saw them really work to aggressively rebuild their domestic herd over the last year. Jim, but now it sounds like prices in China are starting to climb. What's happening there? We uh, we have production in China as a company and we have, you know, a, a whole sales team there. So we're on the ground. If you look at the, U, the official China statistics, you wouldn't believe there's any lower pig production. But the industry lost incomprehensible amount of money over the last 12 months, billions of dollars, billions of dollars. And they liquidate it because that's what happens. They were losing $50, $80 per head for month upon month. Since the first April, the price of pigs in China has doubled. They were getting, for example, let's say $200 for a market hog on the 1st of April. They're getting $400 now. They've gone from losing $100 per head to making $100 a head. People in the pig business would recognize uh, feeder pigs were eight, uh, $75 per head 1st of April, give or take. They're $125 per head right now. Nobody pays more than they have to. It's a reflection of the supply. I expect over the next few months, China will start importing pork from not sure where, but if it comes from Europe, it comes from America, it go it leaves the market. It leaves the other markets and it's going to be very supportive. I look at fall futures of the like right today, 
I think they're really discounted versus where we'll end up just because of the demand side. I, I think the discount to where cash is today is too big. And that discount is pretty incredible for folks who don't follow the hog markets very closely. August in delivery right now at 117.40, October at 94, December at 86, and then we build a little carry back in February of 23. So, Jim, as, as I listen to you describe the situation in China and the potential that they could step back in a big way with imports, as you think about those futures months, October, December, next February, which of those seems to you like a time that China could eventually actually start importing? I imagine it takes them some time to develop those systems well there's about i understand it's 90 days from when an order comes in before the pork leaves so there's a timeline right there that is just a physical timeline um, transportation but the 90 days to get it to china i believe from what i'm told i've i understood there was 2,000 containers of pork sold to china mostly from uh europe and canada a lot a week ago and they were muscle cuts i think it's starting it might be, I don't know if it'll come from the U.S. because the U.S. has a stronger price than Europe right now. But my premise has been for the last several months that right now the U.S. is down in production, Europe is down in production, and China is down in production. It's the first time in history all three have been down at the same time in production. We're going to go in uncharted waters. When you put those three together, it's 75 to 80 percent of the world's pork production. I don't know what it all means because I'm not smart enough, but I just know that this is really going to be supportive of global pork prices. Yeah, Jim, it sounds like it's going to be supportive, and it sounds like it's conditions in place for another year of big-time volatility in the protein space. Is that how you're anticipating the remainder of 22 and into 23 in hogs? Well, I guess I think there's upside certainly to where the futures are. When I look at the – this is my opinion. If you look at the June 1st U.S. Hogs and Pigs report – basically a little bit less pigs than a year ago. Are the, so we've had no expansion. So when you look out at what the prices are going to be the next 12 months, how are they going to be lower, how are they going to be lower when you figure in Europe and China than what they've been the last 12 months? If you go out and look at summer futures, they're around a dollar. We're selling hogs, there's cash hogs today at $1.25. Yeah. Like, why, yeah. will, why will they be a dollar? It doesn't make sense to me. The demand is there. The supply is short. This is a, a, a combination of factors that could lead to fireworks, folks. We've been talking to Jim Long, president and CEO of Genesis Genetics. Jim, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk to Ethan Lane of NCBA when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. 
And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, granted, oil seeds are trading their way to the upside led by the soy complex and wheat once again after traders were surprised to see a significant decline in crop ratings for quarter beans on Monday afternoon. The portion of the corn crop rated good excellent fell three points to 61%, while soybeans fell two points to 59%. Those ratings do not reflect a crop failure, but they do indicate that the adverse impact of the recent hot, dry conditions prior to this week's rain and moderate temperatures had a larger detrimental impact on the crops in the plains in the south than did the relatively better conditions that supported ratings elsewhere. Now, the trade expects those ratings to stabilize again with this week's weather, putting the focus then on August weather. Forecast models currently project the high-pressure ridge to move back to the east to position itself similarly to where it stood earlier this month, bringing hot, dry conditions to much of the western belt once again. So we are putting a little bit of weather premium back in. Also maybe putting a little bit of war premium back in that we lost with the issues going on still in the Black Sea region even after the signing of that Ukraine grain export deal. Also, Wall Street pricing in expectations of recession in recent weeks, which is reflected in many of the equity, commodity, currency, and securities markets. We have the Fed two-day meeting starting today where we expect a 75 basis point rate hike after the meeting is over tomorrow. The trade watching that very closely, including the stock market. Right now on the trade... Corn for September up 17 to three quarters, 597 to three quarters. August beans up 38, 15, 11. Bean meal, bean oil up sharply. September Chicago wheat up 26 and a quarter, 796 and a quarter. September KC wheat up 24 and three quarters, 864 and a half. Spring wheat September up 33, 917. August live cattle down 27, 137.47. Feeders for August down 127, 178.02. August hogs up 5, 117.27. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to continue our dive into the protein markets. We just talked pork with Jim Long of Genesis Genetics. Now we're going to turn our focus to another mainstay of many of our plates, and that, of course, is beef. Cattle producers, men and women from across the country, have found somebody else to do their chores. They've finished putting up their hay, and they have gathered in Reno, Nevada, for the summer business meetings. Ethan Lane, the vice president of government affairs, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, joins us from Reno for an update. Ethan, thanks for jumping on the show today. You bet, Mike. Great to be with you. Let's talk about these summer business meetings. Ethan, how many folks do you have gathered out there in Reno this week? You know, I I haven't heard the final count, but I know we were north of 650 or so pre-registered, which is pretty much on pace with this meeting. This is our smaller meeting of the year, but it's a serious kind of business meeting. So about 700 or so cattle producers from uh, all across the United States, the leadership of those uh, state cattle associations from coast to coast that are here to talk about kind of what we want out of the next year, both from Congress and uh, uh, you know the administration, and also a lot of good checkoff work being done here this week as well. Absolutely. So let's talk about policy, Ethan. That, of course, is your bailiwick. Lots of issues in the cattle industry under discussion this year. What are some of the hot button topics as the policy meetings get underway here today? Well, you know, obviously, I think everybody's attention is turning to the upcoming farm bill conversation in the next Congress. You know, we're looking at those oversight hearings and those field hearings happening now. Producers around the country are starting to kind of think about what they want out of the new farm bill, what programs are working well, what could work better. Um, and, and that's really going to be a big focus this week, I think, is, is talking about how to refine some of those programs uh, and make sure that they're working for producers, uh, particularly with a focus on, on things like risk management. You know, coming out of the last couple of years, I think that's something that's top of mind for a lot of producers. And I expect to have a, a pretty robust discussion about that this week, which is going to be fantastic for our team so that we have the marching orders we need from producers around the country to engage in that conversation in Washington. That is important. Ethan, I do think we have a little bit of a bad connection. I'm going to ask you to hop off and call right back in. We'll get you reconnected, make sure we can hear all the important things that are developing out there in Reno. If you wouldn't mind hopping off and dialing right back in, we'll get you reconnected and we will continue this discussion here in just a moment. Um, We've also got some other news developing out there in the world of agriculture. The protests do continue out at the Port of Oakland. Uh, We talked to Joe Sheely on the program yesterday about the shutdowns at that port this past week from the truckers frustrated by that AB5 law. And today, or at least yesterday, there was agreement reached between the port and the truckers. They are still protesting. No exemptions have been granted as of now. California still wants these 70,000 independent truckers to become employees, but the truckers have said they don't want to impede uh, the progress of exports. So they are continuing to demonstrate at the Port of Oakland, but Joe of the U.S. Meat Export Federation told us yesterday that they have been able to get some trucks through. They have reopened that port for shipping, even though those uh, those discussions about the AB5 law are continuing. Ethan, we got you back with us. I'm here. Can you hear me now? Fantastic. Hearing you loud and clear. So you mentioned risk management on the minds of a lot of producers. Of course, the 2023 Farm Bill is coming up next year. Ethan, what sort of policy avenues do you see risk management taking? Well, you know, I think there's going to need to be a pretty uh, tough conversation given what we're hearing about this farm bill landscape. We, you know, it's going to be a pretty, uh, a pretty flat farm bill environment. We're not going to see a lot of additional funding, uh, but we're certainly going to see additional need as we always do. You know, we have producers in D4 drought conditions in different parts of the country. 
We have producers that have been using new programs like, well, not new programs, but programs like LRP that are uh, newly sort of enhanced and more accessible to producers over the last couple of years. That's going to really change the face of that conversation. You know, when you take a program that uh, has, you know, quintupled or more in size as far as producer engagement, uh, that, that becomes an issue we're going to need to make sure we talk about in the Farm Bill to ensure that that funding is there uh, to provide that tool for producers. So I think that's going to really be a lot of the conversation is how do we hold these programs together and make sure that they're really effective tools for producers in a, in a pretty tight funding environment. Ethan, I'm glad you brought up LRP because that has existed for some time. But here, as you mentioned, in recent past, it has grown by leaps and bounds. What has changed in that program to make it more attractive to producers? Well, back, back in the 2000, in May of 2020, RMA uh, made some changes to the uh, to the, the the subsidy level, you know, for the for the program, uh, and have been kind of looking at ways to refine that program so that it's more attractive to producers. What we've heard for years was you know, it's just not really as good a deal as we see in other programs. That's changing over the last couple of years. And, and along with that, more and more producers are looking at that as a viable risk management option. Um, and as they do so, they're, they're finding it to be a, a program that they like. And I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see us continue to talk to RMA and look for ways to, to continue refining that program. You know, there are some things that could still be improved uh, about how they, how they price that product, especially based on, uh, you know, the, the classes of cattle and that change we've seen in quality grades in cattle. So there's some things that could continue to be done to refine that program, um, but those changes that have been made already have made that far more attractive to producers. Is there any indication that those changes that were made in 2020 could go away, Ethan, or are they permanent? I don't anticipate those changes going away. RMA seems to be looking at ways to continue to improve access to the program. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's rare to find a program that really works, especially for cow-calf producers. Um, and this one, this one seems to be a, a product that's finally on the right track. Um, so I, I would be shocked to hear them go the other direction with it. But again, you know, that's why we're going to need to really be, uh, uh, you know, intentional in the Farm Bill in talking about what's working for producers because we are going to see a lot of folks looking for, uh, you know, their piece of a shrinking pie. And, and it's going to be important to make our case very strongly that this is one that needs to stay viable. It certainly does. And there's a lot more policy beyond just farm bill things that are impacting the cattle industry. Ethan, of course, we've seen uh, we've seen beef processing in the spotlight over the past two years. What are the discussions like around that topic in Reno? You know, I think there's a lot of interest in USDA's uh, billion-dollar investment that they're currently working through as far as expanded processing capacity. And, you know, a lot of that is focused on what is needed where. I think everybody has gotten comfortable with the idea that, you know, we, we have enough just general hooks in the country, enough hook space. What we don't have is enough of the right kind of hooks. We need some diversity in hook space. We need, we need some more regional capacity. And I think that's a lot of the conversation happening now is about some of the initiatives and, and groups that have started looking at packing plants around the country. Uh, people are kind of bringing their anecdotal stories from their parts of the world. And everyone seems to have uh, some sort of a packing plant coming online or being discussed in their corner of the world. And that's kind of dominated the conversation this week. Everyone's comparing notes and, and talking about the different challenges that they're facing, whether that be labor, uh, whether that be permitting or logistics issues, or, or just the financing needed for, for that. You know, I mean, a, a, a new packing plant is about $150,000 plus per hook investment. So it's not a, not a, cheap, uh, not a cheap project to undertake.
No, it, it certainly isn't. And it highlights the importance of keeping the animals we have in this country safe and healthy. And I understand a lot of conversation in Reno is about the Beagle Brigade right now. Ethan, can you fill us in on what the Beagle Brigade is and why NCBA cares? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we're always really focused on is making sure that uh, we help our friends at APHIS keep those borders as safe as possible so that we don't see any products coming to this country that could uh, derail what is the cleanest, safest food system in the world here in the United States. And it turns out that beagles are extremely good at helping with that, with that challenge for APHIS. Uh, so we were glad to participate in, uh, in that effort to make sure that the, the Beagle Brigade, as it's called, that, uh, that, that rounds out that force of APHIS employees at the border, uh, smelling all of those packages and boxes and, and crates that come across the border uh, to look for anything harmful, uh, uh, stays a viable entity that, that can continue to keep an eye out for us on the southern border. Uh, but it's kind of, a, kind of a cool thing to be involved with. It is, and it's kind of neat. I've seen those beagles working in airports. The TSA had me go into a narrow single file, and the beagle came through and, and sniffed my bags and sent me on my way. So this program has existed. Ethan, is this a funding question to increase the number of beagles that are out there? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a viability of funding issue, and, and that's you know, obviously a challenge everywhere in the federal government right now. There's just not enough money to go around. Inflation is putting pressure on everything. Everything costs more. So trying to articulate that case that this is this is not one to take lightly. This is this is not an area we want to play around with and we have a program that works and is effective and we want to make sure it's funded appropriately. Ethan, as I look at the map of NCBA regions, of course, your regions four, five, and six out there in the West, they are grappling with drought issues. Is water a big topic of conversation at the meeting this year? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, anybody who works in agriculture knows that every conversation beginning begins and ends with, you know, how the weather is in your part of the world versus how the weather is in my part of the world. And that's certainly the case this week. But, you know, when we're in the kind of drought conditions that we're in, uh, some of those stories are awfully hard. I, I think when we talk to producers around the country, I know I was home in Arizona with my family last week, and, and we were really glad to get a, a nice rain that was needed badly in our part of the world. And, and I think we're seeing kind of a mixed bag around the, around the West. Some people are starting to get a little moisture. Others are still in pretty bad shape. Uh, so that's something that's definitely top of mind for producers in the West in particular. But, you know, that's, that's, not, a, that's not where it's limited. I mean, we've seen drought conditions reaching into areas that don't typically have those kinds of problems. So this is a, a wide-reaching problem this year. It is. And I understand a little bit later today you'll be talking about the impact of inflation on consumers at the business meeting. Ethan, that'll be an important topic. Well, it, it will. You know, that's something that obviously we always have to keep in mind. We have our set of issues in producing cattle and, and turning those cattle into beef, but we always want to keep an eye on our consumer and make sure that they're not dissuaded from buying uh, the best protein in the world by, uh, by the price. So, you know, when they go to the grocery store and look at that meat case and there's a pound of ground beef and a, a pound of chicken breasts and a pound of, you know, uh, pork chops, we want to make sure we're a viable option and inflation can certainly play into that. It certainly can. Lots of issues on our plate for cattle producers this upcoming year. Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs at NCBA. Ethan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And have fun out there in Reno. Folks, stick with us. We're going to talk farmland values with Randy Dickot of the Farmers National Company when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together 
This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Nelson Neal. He's the vice president of CHS Global Research about the current price volatility affecting U.S. farmers and ranchers. Nelson, inflation is everywhere. What impact do you see inflation having here on economic volatility in the future? As the Federal Reserve makes moves to increase interest rates and potentially tamp down on that inflation, I think what you're going to see is that these broader market forces in some cases can overshadow uh, what's happening in and on the farm with the crop. Nelson, this extreme volatility we're seeing in the markets, is there a plus side for agriculture? Of course there is. You know, we talked about significant market volatility in crop inputs and how that could potentially be a negative and, and needs to, and farmers and ranchers need to pay close attention to the prices of those crop inputs. The flip side of that is a lot of the volatility and some of the price levels that we've seen associated with crop inputs, we're seeing that mirrored in the price that's associated with, with the crop itself when we're talking about corn and soybean prices. There are opportunities, I, I think, for farmers and ranchers to, to understand what the price that could be received for their crop is. And again, really focusing on managing that margin and, and having a true understanding of both input prices and output prices because of, there could be potential opportunities uh, for farmers and ranchers to, to lock in a, a, what I would call a reasonable margin. CHS is hosting Around the Table Live on August 4th, where you can hear more from Nelson and other experts on ag price volatility and what you can do to protect your risk. To get more information and to register for Around the Table Live on August 4th, visit chsinc.com markets. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com.
Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day here on this Tuesday. One thing we have seen again and again and again over the last two or three years in agriculture is climbing values of farmland. Well, one company moves a lot of that farm ground, and that's Farmers National. Randy Dickout is the Senior Vice President for Real Estate Operations there at Farmers National. He keeps track of all of these trends in the world of farmland values. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Let's start with the leaders of the pack in terms of farmland value. Randy, you just compiled some data show Illinois and Iowa tied for the lead. What is the average value of farm ground in Iowa and Illinois? Well, we survey the uh, and collect what we think is a high quality uh, sales, you know, that good quality, top quality uh, cropland. And look at the average sale prices. There'll be, you know, Iowa's had some twenty-five, twenty-six thousand dollars an acre. We had a twenty-one thousand five hundred dollar an acre sale in Illinois. But if you, you know, there's a lot of land that sells for less of that. So we try and look at what an average for that good quality. And we posted there in late June, you know, Illinois and Iowa at fifteen thousand dollars per acre. We know that. A lot of it goes for more than that, but that's a good number that shows the trends that have been happening the last few years, as you mentioned. And Randy, those trends are staggering. The Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, you know, the I-State farm ground value, what percentage increase have you seen since 2020? Those have increased, oh, um, you know, different statistics have shown that Iowa was up 29% in uh, 2021, Illinois, a little less than that. But again, that's the average of all land sales and all land types from lower quality uh, tillable to cropland to the better quality. So it shows the average. The best quality land typically accelerates or appreciates the, the most. We've, we've seen in 2022, the past six months, especially in that first three, four months of the year, 20% increase in some places. So we've we probably have seen, you know, a 30% increase across the board for most states. 
It's absolutely staggering. You know, we touched on the ice states there, but Randy, these gains in farmland values have really held true across much of farm country, even drought land like Oklahoma, Texas, we're still seeing substantial appreciation in their farmland. Are there any places where you're not seeing it appreciate as much as we are in other places? I think that would be more on your fringe areas, uh, and I'm not well-versed on it. You know, probably the East Coast, uh, we'd see some transactions in the Southeast, like Georgia, that area. Those land values are up also, uh, but I don't know exactly what they might run. And so, you know, the trend, and take, for instance, Arkansas or Kansas, you know, uh, there are sales that are much stronger than we we show there, but again, what those averages are, and there's just been strength overall the last couple of years. Randy, I want to ask you about how this farmland is moving. Pre-COVID, we saw most of the farm ground, at least I saw here in the central part of the Corn Belt, moving via private treaty. It was listed for sale. Then, of course, auctions got really hot. Is auction still where most of this ground is changing hands? Auctions uh, across this central Corn Belt are the primary uh, way to really sell land and find out what the market's willing to pay at any given point in time. Uh, we're also seeing probably in the northern Corn Belt some more online auctions um, and some public auctions also. We do, as a company, do a lot of simulcast where it's you know simultaneously online and live bidding with the auctioneer in the room, and it's all broadcast. So both both the parties uh, online and live get to see the same bidding um, in real time. So that's worked very well. But the auctions are, are a preferred way if, if a seller really wants to know uh, what their land will sell for. That makes sense. Uh, Randy, we hear a lot about who owns the farm ground. And I'm curious, given the fact that there's not a lot of returns in other places, are we still seeing investors uh, eyeing farm ground hungrily? And who's buying it? Well, farmers typically buy 60 to 80 percent of the uh, good cropland that comes up for sale. Um, probably more so on the higher end of that. We'll see 70 to 80 percent. Uh, when times are good and uh, that farm comes up for sale. And like you said, it only comes up for sale once in every three or four generations in their neighborhood. So they have to have to be competitive and uh, be willing to, um, you know, jump in and buy that. Also, we have seen uh, individual investors uh, come into the market more over this run up here, uh, especially as the start of the year with some talk of inflation and the higher commodity prices and how that might work for uh, a number of years here. Right now, um, I think we'll see how that investor buying or interest goes uh, coming up to the fall pre-harvest, post-harvest uh, auction selling season, if they're still interested. I think there may be a little bit more caution with the rising interest rates and other uncertainties, but I think for various reasons, you know, as an inflation hedge or, um, you know, more certainty than some other alternative investments um, for a long-term um, return and outlook, farmland will still be of interest to uh, quite a few investors. Yeah, Will. Randy, in your conversations there at Farmers National, are you hearing about more acres coming up for sale? Are these high prices spurring folks to list some farm ground? 
It is, and you have to remember that usually most of the sellers of farmland are those uh, estates or trusts or recent family inheritors of that land or maybe a family uh, group that's owned it for a while and they're seeing that, you know, uh, higher prices. So definitely the higher prices are bringing about that interest on those individuals who are wanting to sell and uh, uncertainty in other parts of the market. So um, we've definitely seen some uptick in the amount of sales compared to the previous uh, few years. All right, a lot of excitement out there in the farmland space. Randy Dickett, Farmers National Vice President, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, we'll see you tomorrow. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.